Good afternoon. My name is Karen Sampson Hoffman, and I'd like to welcome you to today's Ask the Expert webcast, Culturally Adapted ADHD Treatment for Children from Spanish-Speaking Families. We are welcoming clinical researcher Dr. Sen Dr. Allison Gerdes. The Ask the Expert webcast series is presented by the National Research Center on ADHD, which gives the general public access to top clinicians, researchers, and other professionals. The National Research Center is a partnership between the between CHAD and the Centers for the Disease Control and Prevention and serves as the national clearinghouse for the latest evidence-based information on ADHD. A recording of today's broadcast will be available through the National Resource Center on ADHD's website, helpforadhd.org, underneath Ask the Expert in about two business days. To view the recording sooner, please follow the same link you used today. The recording will be available about 30 minutes following our presentation. If you are having any difficulties, please give us a call at 1-800-233-4050, and our health information specialist will be happy to assist you. We are here Monday to Friday, 1 to 5 p.m. at 1-800-233-4050, and online again at www.help4adhd.org. Finally, following today's webcast, a brief survey will appear on your screen. Please take a couple of minutes to let us know what you think and how we can better serve the ADHD community through the Ask the Expert webcast series. It is a privilege to introduce today's guest expert, Dr. Allison Gerdes. Dr. Gerdes leads research to inform and guide clinicians treating childhood ADHD, including examining evidence-based assessment and treatment of childhood ADHD culturally appropriate clinical practices, and Latino mental health disparities in parent-child and parent relationships, and sorry, peer relationships of children and young people with ADHD. Some of Dr. Gertie's recent projects include best recruitment practices for Latino families, translating Spanish versions of commonly used assessment and treatment outcome measures, examining Latino parent parental perceptions about ADHD, the role of culture and parental recognition and motivation to seek help for ADHD, and developing a culturally appropriate measure of functional impairment for ADHD. There's a lot of ADHD involved. <laughs> <laughs> for those of you who would like to ask Dr. Gerdes a question about, it, about her presentation, we are accepting questions in the questions box. On the toolbar is indicated by the red arrow shown in the slide. All questions are moderated, and we will try to get to as many as possible during the question and answer portion of the webcast. Again, we are very pleased to welcome today's guest expert, Dr. Gerdes, if you'd like to begin. Thanks so much, Karen. Um, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on, on this slide. I do want to try to leave as much time for the Q&A as possible. But just a brief um, introduction about ADHD. It is one of the most commonly diagnosed mental health disorders in children. Um, what we see with these kiddos um, are developmentally inappropriate levels of hyperactivity, impulsivity, indoor inattention and also associated impairments in um, academic, social, and in family functioning. Unfortunately, we find that these symptoms in functional impairments um, continue into adulthood. Um, there are two effective psychosocial treatments for childhood ADHD, the first being behavioral parent training and the second being behavioral classroom interventions. 
That brings us, though, to um, the Latino mental health disparities piece of my work because um, even though we have these um, effective treatments, we don't really have Latino families, especially less acculturated Latino families, are not well represented in the treatment outcome studies that look at behavioral parent training. And so we don't really know how effective these treatments are with Latino youth, especially Latino youth um, whose parents are less acculturated. Unfortunately, the Latino population um, is one of the the largest and fastest um, ethnic minority groups with estimates that by the middle of the century, 40% of the children in the United States will be Latino. I started this by saying, unfortunately, not that the, <laughs> the numbers are growing, but it's unfortunate that despite this growth, we don't have effective treatments or know about um, whether or not we have effective treatments for this population. Unfortunately, we also know that Latino families often do not receive mental health services. And even when they do, they're more likely to prematurely drop out of treatment. So this certainly has led to researchers really calling for more culturally sensitive mental health interventions, um, particularly for Latino families. So a couple of areas to think about in terms of what would more culturally appropriate treatments look like. Um, my team has focused both on cultural factors that um, would lend themselves to adaptations to treatment, as well as practical barriers that would need to be addressed to make any existing treatment more culturally congruent for Latino families. So in terms of cultural factors, um, the work we do is predominantly with um, Mexican-American families. And so when I speak about these cultural values, I'm thinking about that particular um, subgroup of Latino families. But we do see um, among uh, many Mexican-American families, we see a support and respect for um, traditional gender roles, where mothers are seen as um, the nurturers of the family and fathers more as the providers of the family. And we'll see a little bit about how um, that needs to be taken into account when making adaptations to treatment. And then in terms of family and parenting values, just quickly, the things that we see is that many Latino families place a stronger emphasis on self-control and obedience. And they may be less likely to praise really what we would consider behavior that we would expect from the child. And again, how this plays into treatment we'll um, address in a few minutes. And finally, this issue related to respect for authority, this really um, comes into play in treatment with regards to even if the parents may not quite be buying into what the co-leaders or the co-therapists are saying, um, they may be less likely to voice the concerns about this. And we'll talk a little bit again about how that could impact um, the treatment process. And then in terms of practical barriers, the things that we focused on were the fact that there's a lack of bilingual providers, that many of the families with whom we work um, also lack health insurance and or um, money to pay for treatment out of pocket. Our families also deal with transportation issues. Um, I think stigma is an issue um, 
stigma for mental health is an issue, I think, in most subgroups in, in the U.S., but it particularly is something that we focused on with our Latino families, and also just being unfamiliar with how the mental health system works in the U.S. So um, the treatment that we developed is Entrenamiento para so una familia exitosa, or training to be a successful family. And I didn't want to spend a lot of time on development simply because I don't have a lot of time. But a couple of quick things that I wanted to mention is that we did bring a diverse team together um, that included Latino parents, it included mental health professionals who work with Latino families, and then also um, ADHD and um, Latino mental health disparities researchers. And we used a culturally sensitive grassroots approach in the sense that we used um, current literature that we thought would be relevant to this. We used recommendations from mental health providers working with Latino families. But most importantly, we conducted a series of focus groups with Latino parents. Um, this was uh, four separate focus groups focused specifically on um, parent training and then the individual sessions of parent training and really wanted to get as much feedback as we could about what aspects of this would work um, for families and what aspects our Latino parents didn't um, really seem to, to like very much. So that resulted in um, a number of treatment adaptations. I'm going to talk about general treatment adaptations, session or class specific adaptations, and then some newly developed classes. So in terms of more global adaptations, um, one thing that came out of our focus groups is that Latino parents would really benefit from and appreciate more role plays and active parental coaching in the classes themselves. And so that was something that was added to all eight sessions where we actually um, go through role plays, doing it the right way, doing it um, the wrong way, letting the, the families role play with each other, and then coaching them along the way so that they really have time to, to practice um, the new skills that we're teaching them. Um, other things that came out that we um, identified as more global adaptations that happened in all of the sessions, we simplified the, the handouts in terms of trying to um, not have many of them. So we tried to really narrow down what are the, the key points that we want families to be able to re, um, remember. And we have little cartoon strips on them now just to increase the visual appeal and make them a little bit more user friendly. Similarly, families also indicated that video demonstrations that they could take home would be really helpful. So we have um, each session has various kind of role plays recorded, if you will, that we send home with the family so that if they forget, how am I supposed to do this, they can not only look at the handout, but that they can also watch the video. In terms of um, cultural adaptations, we see some of these happening in more of the assessment kind of intake phase where we have um, changed the terminology in the focus of the assessment process. We talk about um, identifying concerns or challenges with parents rather than identifying problems. And we also put a lot more weight on functional impairment. Um, and uh, we still look at 
DSM symptomatology, of course, um, but we found that asking about functional impairment seems to be more culturally um, universal, if you will. We also focused on involving the extended family, so trying to get a sense of are there older siblings, are there grandparents that really are involved in the parenting as well, and if so, trying to get them involved in the treatment process. The other things that you'll see um, regarding respect for authority, appropriate expectations about change, and then culturally congruent rationale for homework completion, again, we see throughout all eight sessions. And what we do here is we bring up these concerns based on uh, what our previous families um, told us in the focus groups and on what the cultural literature suggests in terms of we're going to need to openly address that families may not be on board with us but may not be telling us that out of, out of respect for the co-leaders. Um, that we need to really make sure that we're reminding parents that change takes time and that if we don't want to lose a family, we need to let them know things may not be getting better yet, but stick with it um, and we will keep tweaking things and, until we do. And then providing really culturally congruent rationales about um, focusing on encouraging um, the parents to be more empowered by learning these different skills and, and in efforts to make the family more successful. And then in terms of practical barriers, we do frame the class as educational rather than as therapy. So we talk about it as class rather than as treatment or sessions. Our goal is to make the whole family more accessible. So rather than identifying a particular child as a problem, um, we try to focus on how can we make this kiddo and the family be more successful given the challenges that the kiddo may be having. The classes are held in the evening. Of course, they're available in Spanish, um, which was uh, a huge goal of ours. We also are able to offer the classes free of charge, and we do provide gender and child care. And this really, again, is really trying to tap the entire family. So we want both parents there. We want grandparents there um, so that um, everyone involved with the child has an opportunity to learn these skills. And then in terms of class-specific adaptations, some of the um, changes that we made to the daily report card, which is uh, the school intervention that we work with the families to develop, is we really increased the parents' involvement with the school throughout this whole process. So typically, the parent doesn't get involved in the school meetings about the daily report card until the very end of treatment when we're basically trying to transition them into um, taking over the daily report card with the help of the teacher as we start to wean ourselves out. So one thing that we did is the parents are at every school meeting from the very beginning to the very end. They're coming weekly to really be able to increase their comfort level with the school. When we have a situation where the teacher does not speak Spanish, we identify someone in the school from at the very beginning who can come to the meetings with the idea that this person would continue to facilitate um, any language barriers once we're out of the picture and the family has taken over the daily report card. We focus on a culturally congruent rationale, talking about empowering the parents, improving family communication, 
We address parental concerns about um, rewarding expected behavior, and we really try to do this by bringing up um, we bring up the concerns and hopes that the family then feels comfortable challenging authority. Um, we bring up a few concerns and uh, we ask parents, are, you know, what do you think about these concerns? These are things people have said in the past. Are there other concerns that you have? Just to try to create an environment in which they feel comfortable challenging the co-leaders if they're not really on board. In terms of effective instructions, um, we do talk about the potential role of traditional gender roles interfering here in terms of um, the follow-through, so what's going to be the consequence if the child doesn't follow um, the instructions and not wanting um, the mother to wait until the father gets home to deal with that, but wanting the mother to feel empowered to deal with that um, when it happens. And then in terms of positive and negative attention, again, we're revisiting parental concerns about giving attention for and rewards for expected behavior, um, taking over the DRC. We're trying to uh, focus on simplifying that process, making it more collaborative so that the parent doesn't feel like they're in this by themselves. They really feel like they are working together with the teacher. And then final tips for success, really trying to instill hope in the families that um, change is happening and is, will continue to happen, and also giving them a few extra new tools during the session. I want to talk just quickly about the more newly developed classes. Um, so one thing that came out of our parental focus groups is time out was not well received. Um, by the Latino parents in our groups. So two things, um, two issues came up with regarding timeout. One is that many parents felt like it was not severe enough of a consequence for repeated noncompliance, which they saw as a sign of disrespect. And the other one was that many parents voiced concern about placing their child in isolation from the rest of the family and felt that that seemed very in, um, inconsistent with their values. And so instead, we focused the session on introducing natural consequences for misbehavior and using the removal of privileges and possessions for misbehavior. And we define these things, we discuss them, we role play them. And then this is one of two classes that also is followed up with a home visit. So we go into the home for approximately 30 minutes and we have them um, practice um, implementing natural consequences endure re the removal of privileges and possessions in the home with their child and provide coaching for them um, in the home. And then finally, the token economy or kind of this home poker chip system that is often used um, also is not well received by the parents in our focus groups. And the two concerns that came up here is they felt like um, the system was too complicated to be able to consistently implement, especially in families where there were multiple children that needed to be cared for. And then the second one was there were concerns that um, we were trying to enforce too much, too much structure in the home that many of these um, uh, families perhaps were not used to or really may not be open um, to. So instead, we, we tried to um, dial back um, 
this token economy system, and instead focus on managing the homework hour and managing checklists. And this involves coming up with a very simple homework hour plan if the family wants to do that. Or we have some families who it has worked better for us to help them identify and enroll their child in a community-based program um, where the homework is done there. This has been particularly helpful in families where language is a huge barrier um, and where there is a lot of chaos in the home for various um, reasons. And it, it seemed like the best path would be to try to get some assistance with this homework in a different setting. And then this class also is followed up with um, a home visit if we decided to implement the homework plan. And then the checklists, those are focused on morning and bedtime routines. We actually help the families make them in session. Um, they're laminated so the family can put them right up. And we come up with a very simple kind of reward plan um, where the child can earn um, something quick in the morning and at bedtime after they've um, gone through their checklist. And then we also have another home visit here if the um, family did more of the community-based plan for their homework. Then we will um, check in with them at home and make sure that the checklists are going well. Okay, I'm going to stop there so I leave plenty of time for questions. All right, and our questions are coming in, and now is okay. a good time to offer questions to our participants. You can put your questions now into the question box, and we are taking questions. Our first one is coming from Fatrina, and she was uh, wondering, you mentioned having teachers, instructors who are bilingual, and she was wondering where she could find uh, solid information in Spanish that she can share with her clients to help them understand what ADHD and what treatment options there are and um, better understand the multimodal and how it can be applied in their families. I, I would guess that the um, information that would be available in Spanish probably depends on, on um, geographically um, where this person is. But I can tell you that I have um, visited Chad's website many times, and I know that there's a lot of information available there in Spanish. I believe the CDC also has information available in Spanish. Um, my team also has translated um, and validated quite a bit of information too. So depending on what she was looking for, I imagine she could find some things on both Chad and the CDC's website. And then if there's something more specific that she's looking for, um, it may be something that I could provide or, or direct her to someone within her geographic region. All right, thank you. And uh, again, the National Resource Center on ADHD, we have a lot of information. In fact, our entire website translates into Spanish. And our What We Know sheets are also in Spanish. So that's another resource for people who are looking for Spanish, um, Spanish language materials. Well, our next question now is coming from Sarah, and she's referring back to when you mentioned that there's a, a shortage of qualified therapists who, who work with Spanish-speaking families or who are themselves bilingual. And she was wondering, what are some ways that therapists who aren't fluent in Spanish but recognize and embrace cultural differences among the Spanish-speaking populations can work effectively with, pa with patients, children, families if a Spanish-speaking therapist is not available? 
Well, I, I guess there's a couple of things I'd want to say in response to that. One is, you know, today my presentation focused um, specifically on cultural adaptations. The, the other piece of this really is cultural competence. And so um, I, I don't think you can really um, work, with, work well with um, Spanish-speaking families in terms of the, the providing them the best possible care without having both, um, working with treatments that have been up, adapted for them, but also making sure that um, you are continuing to improve your own cultural competence. And so I do feel like that cultural competence piece really has nothing to do with language per se. It's about making sure that, and, and it's a process. It's not like I, I certainly don't feel like I can check off that box. Yes, I'm culturally competent. But my um, graduate students and I are, are continuing to go to workshops and read about these things in order to um, continue to grow in terms of that cultural competence piece. And so that would be one thing I would encourage people, even if um, they don't speak Spanish, that that, that certainly doesn't um, impact them in any way in terms of continuing to grow in terms of their own cultural competence by educating themselves and attending workshops and doing reading and readings in these areas. Um, when we first started working with Latino families in this area, I did not have a team of bilingual providers. And so we worked with translators. Um, it's not the best case scenario. Um, but it's better than, than nothing. And so if, you, if we have someone, you know, a therapist who doesn't speak Spanish but, but um, is working on their own cultural competence, is working with um, Latino families, even if they may be Spanish-speaking only, even if they can find someone who could serve as um, a translator for them so they could still be doing the culturally um, adapted treatment, but just in, in English if they had the, the help of um, a translator. Thank you. One of the things you mentioned earlier was the, the treatment and the standard treatment, the multimodal, and, and making it appropriate for each family. We have a question from Alan, and he was wondering, how do you address the resistance some parents have to doing a medication trial? We hear often that some families are resistant to it, even though this is part of the multimodal approach. What would you suggest? So this is um, my general approach to working with um, families of children with ADHD, not just Spanish-speaking Latino families, but families in general. We always start, if the, if the child comes in without medication, we always start with a behavioral intervention first. And in fact, there's some pretty good data that suggests that um, if you start with a behavioral intervention first, and then at some point you have to add medication, that that child can be maintained on a lower dose because of that behavioral intervention being in place beforehand. So that's my general approach. We start with the behavioral intervention. We're very upfront with families about that. And I think that they appreciate that, knowing that, hey, we're on board with you. We're going to try the behavioral stuff first. But they also know typically, um, you know, I think about um, our culturally adapted treatment, we assess at week five and week eight in particular, um, is the child making significant enough gains? And if we have a kiddo who's not, who despite 
the parents and the teacher's best effort in terms of the behavioral intervention. If we have a kid who's not making enough gains or we have a kid who potentially even could be, um, behavior could be deteriorating, then we always do talk to the family about adding medication. And we found that by taking that approach, even families who initially were reluctant are, are, are willing to try that with us most times because we started with the behavioral stuff first. We said, hey, this isn't quite doing what we want it to do. The best option here is to add medication, knowing that you know, the research suggests that your kid could be on a lower dose um, because we've done the behavioral stuff first. And so I have found that, um, that kind of tiered system to be really effective, not, with, not only with um, Spanish-speaking Latino families, but with families in general. Well, thank you. Um, one of our previous um, participants, one of our previous questions, Sarah, she said that she's really interested in the study that you've done and in the work you've done, and she would like to incorporate some of, some of your study and some of your research into her practice, and she's wondering, is there a guidebook available? Is there someone she can reach out to to kind of incorporate some of what you've just talked about? Um, we have an article that recently came out in Journal of Latino, Latino Psychology that talks about the process of adapting the treatment and then reports on a small pilot of of families that we um, tested the culturally adapted treatment on. So that's available to the public. The treatment manual, um, the detailed treatment manual is not currently available to the public, but we right now are um, comparing that culturally adapted treatment manual to treatment as usual um, with funding from um, the National Institutes of Health. And so once that study is finished, then um, those things would likely be publicly available as well. But if there, again, if there's something in particular that she's looking for, um, she can certainly um, reach out to me. And if it's something that, that I'm able to provide her, I certainly would do that. All right. Uh, if she does contact us, we will share that information. Okay. Well. Our, our next question now is coming from Luvia, and she was also very interested, and she was wondering, where are the parenting classes that you've talked about taking place, and can parents be trained to train other parents under your program? So I'm at Marquette University, which is in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and so that's where the culturally adapted um, parent groups are happening right now. To my knowledge, there isn't anyone else doing those in the country, to my knowledge. Um, but again, the idea is after we are able to uh, wrap up the study and actually sh definitively show that the culturally adap adapted treatment is better than treatment as usual, um, our goal is to disseminate the culturally adapted treatment so that it would be available to other individuals. Um, there is, I've never seen a mechanism for training parents how to train other parents with regards to treatment for ADHD. Um, not that that couldn't happen, um, but it's not something that, that I've seen in um, uh, some pieces of a behavioral intervention probably require um, a bit more extensive um, behavioral training and background than I would guess most um, parents would have, so I don't know if that would be possible, but the idea of being able to disseminate the treatment to 
clinicians, therapists, etc., social workers throughout the country is, is definitely something that we intend on doing. Thank you. Well, we've got a question now from Zimena, and she uh, identifies as being Latina. And she was wondering, can you share the emotions you have found in parents that find out that their kids have ADHD? Do you have an example from your practice what that first experience was when a child is first diagnosed? Um, I'm, I'm not sure if Hamana was referring specifically to uh, the Latino families we work with or, or families more in general, but I think the, the experience or the reaction is probably similar. Um, I oftentimes, and this certainly is not true for every parent, but I would say in general there's usually a sense of relief from the family to actually know that there's um, a reason why their child is struggling in, in the classroom or at home. Um, and I, I think there's relief in knowing that they're not alone, especially when we um, do the parenting groups. I think the parents are a huge source of support for one another. Um, I would say that in terms of specifically the Latino parents that we've worked with, again, we're working with um, usually more recent immigrants, many of whom don't speak English. That's why the treatment um, was translated into Spanish. And so their experience certainly isn't going to be representative of all Latinos in this country by any means, but those are the families that we work with. Um, oftentimes ADHD, that term, is not something that the families are familiar with at all. And so part of the treatment is just providing them with some psychoeducation about um, what ADHD is and what that means for their child and what that means for their family. And then again, my experience has been that knowing that there is a, um, an explanation or a reason for why their child is struggling and knowing that there are other parents who are experiencing similar things um, usually comes as a relief. That's something we've heard at the National Research Center on ADHD also, that when there is finally a diagnosis cross-culturally, there is a relief, a sense of, okay, now we know what's going on, now we know what we can do. Well, our next question is coming from Alice, and she was wondering what can she do in her practice to become more culturally competent? How can she be a better therapist for Spanish-speaking families? Um, well, I think developing cultural competence in general is probably something that every clinician, therapist, social worker, psychologist, um, again, I consider it a process. So there definitely are um, workshops and seminars that are offered across the country. Um, many of them also are just available online um, so that, that you, know, you don't even necessarily have to live in the location or travel to where it's happening, but you can find a number of things online. There also are some really good books about um, developing cultural competence. And um, again, to me, that's a very separate thing than focusing on adaptations that you can make to treatment. And I think that all of us could work on um, continuing to develop cultural competence. All right, thank you, and I think that's a, a very helpful. Our next question is coming from Alan again, and he's he's been very interested in, in all that you've had to say. And he was wondering, in terms of outreach, do you work with Spanish-speaking media or national organizations? How are you getting this information out to the public to to help? 
That's an excellent question. So we have not used um, any kind of media as an outlet, but what we do instead is we have um, spent you know, 10 years or more developing um, community connections within our immediate community. So this involves um, priests at church. This involves teachers and school interventionists and principals and school social workers. Um, and we um, also, in terms of thinking about mental health professionals in the community who are working with a lot of Latino families, pediatricians in the community. And so our outreach has, I guess, been more um, local, if you will, in terms of making sure that the people um, in our area, the people who work every day with Latino families in the community, at school, at church, etc., that they're aware of um, the services that are available for these families. And those really are our um, referral sources as well. Those are the folks, the priests, the teachers, the principals, etc., who are letting families know about um, the treatment. Thank you. Well, we have a question um, again from Sarah, and she was wondering, she's referring back to it, and you were talking about token economies and timeouts and how these don't seem to be helpful um, for the group that you've been working with in your study. And she was wondering, have you identified interventions that are not accepted or not appropriate for Latino teens? What you were talking about are often used with young children. What is, not a, what is appropriate and what is not appropriate for teenagers? So our age group is actually 5 to 13. Um, our, that's the range that we will see. Our kiddos typically are more in kind of the 6 to 10-year-old age range. Um, I do not work with um, Latino teens, and so our adaptations have, have not focused on that um, population whatsoever. But I can tell you just in general, um, time out at, you know, you're going to hear some differences about kind of the, the age range for something like timeout, but we typically, um, so this isn't specific to Latino families, this is more in general, we typically find that timeout really starts to become age, age inappropriate at about age 10 or 11. And so it's definitely not something I would use with a teenager, Latino or otherwise. Um, the token economy or this kind of poker chip system as you as you um, as we move in even to dealing with our twelve and thirteen year olds we don't really use chips anymore um, we use kind of a point system that's usually kept in kind of a checkbook ledger so and again these are uh, modifications that we make based on age. Um, Regardless of the the child's ethnicity, but I don't I don't work specifically with um, teens, but just with regards to the token economy, could it could it be adapted for teens? Sure, it usually is more of a point system. Um, timeout I would not see as effective even for our kind of preteens, um, and so using more of um, the consistent consequences with regards to natural consequences and removal of um, privileges and prized possessions, electronics, that kind of thing, would likely be more effective with um, teenagers. Well, thank you. And I think that's a, a good idea. There comes a point when a young person does outgrow the timeout concept. Um, 
Well, our next question is coming from Kevin. And he is referring that you mentioned that extended families are involved in the treatment process. And he was wondering, what does that look like? And if you had some examples. But he also had the concern, especially when we're talking involving parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles, are there some privacy concerns in this approach? Um, so in terms of what it looks like, we have had um, several families who the grandparents, at least one set of grandparents, is really actively involved in the child caring. Um, and so those families come to group. So um, they learn the same skills and strategies that we're teaching the parents, and we are asking them to use those same skills and strategies um, with the children when they are in their care. In terms of the privacy, um, you know, it's not something that we have, I guess, ever encountered in terms of it being an issue. Um, I suppose the the parents could sign a release of some kind if that was a concern. So they really are giving you permission to have contact with these other family members. Um, but again, it's it's not something I've that piece of it is not something I've dealt directly with. Okay, thank you. Um, well, our next question is coming from Mary, and she was wondering. Um, Pardon me, how have, you, how have you tailored your outreach and your treatment when there are varying levels of literacy within the family? Or in some instances, um, the parents may only speak Spanish, but the children are fluent in both English and Spanish. How do you vary the uh, information, the health information? So when we've worked with our Spanish-speaking only Families. What we're really referring to is parents who um, are predominantly Spanish speakers. I would say not in every case, but in most cases, um, the children are bilingual, and we even have some cases where the children don't speak Spanish much at all. Um, so all of the materials that we provide, the parents are in Spanish. So um, any material that both the child and the parent will um, need to have access to, and that would include things like the school intervention, the daily report card, um, the checklist at home, that all the materials for those things are provided in English and Spanish. So they're right underneath one another. So the Spanish will appear and then the English will appear right underneath it so that both the parent and child um, have access to, to the material in, in whatever language they feel most comfortable with. In terms of literacy level, that has been an issue with some of our families, um, especially for families whose education level, um, the parents' education level may be a little bit younger or lower. Um, we try to keep everything, all of the measures that we use, all of the handouts that we use, we try to keep them at about the a fourth grade reading level. Um, and even then we have had situations where we have um, read the items um, to parents who still were struggling a little bit um, with comprehending the reading. I think that got everything. I think that did. I think that does answer the question. Well, our next question is, is kind of related. It's coming from Alice again. And uh, she was wondering what resources are available for adults with ADHD in Spanish-speaking families. We know that children who have ADHD very often have parents who have ADHD. So in your program and in what you're working on, what resources do you have available for adults? 
So that is very true, um, especially with fathers. We do oftentimes find um, that one or both parents will um, may have ADHD as well. That is that particular um, area is, again as a child um, psychologist, I would refer those families if I thought that they needed their own treatment for ADHD after we had finished the group. But in terms of um, materials, again, I think that you could can find those things on um, Chad's webpage and the CDC webpage. It sounds like the National Resource Center on ADHD's webpage. Um, that those are organizations that aren't just focused on kids, and so there, there would be relevant Spanish materials for adults with ADHD at those locations as well. Thank you. And yes, the National Resource Center on ADHD, we do have an entire section that has information for adults. And the information is available in both English and Spanish. And also, I'd like to remind our audience that uh, we have a health information specialist who is fluent in Spanish and regularly answers questions in Spanish. And she is available also Monday to Friday, 1 to 5, at our phone number, 1-800-233-4050. And when I say 1 to 5, I do need to remind you that is Eastern Time. Well, our next question is coming from Janet. And she was wondering if there are educational interventions used in classrooms or perhaps part of uh, the more formal IEPs or 504 plans that would be more culturally appropriate for children from Spanish-speaking families. What would you suggest? And you did mention that there was a daily report card that was part of this program. So what are some things that maybe families could suggest or, or ask for when they're going into an IEP or a 504 process? So the school intervention or the daily report card is actually one piece of the intervention in terms of what it looks like in the classroom that is not that it remains unchanged. So that piece is not adapted in terms of what the intervention looks like. What the adaptations around the daily report card though are the ones that I talked about a little bit earlier with regards to um, getting the family involved with those teacher meetings from the very beginning and having the, the, the parent present at, a, at every week at that teacher meeting and helping them develop a reward menu that makes sense for the kid and makes sense for the family um, with regard to what does this child earn when they bring home that daily report card every day. So there are adaptations in terms of um, getting the parent more involved, making sure the reward menu is, is culturally congruent, but the um, intervention itself is the same intervention that we use um, with um, non-Spanish speaking Latino families and certainly oftentimes is a part of an IEP or a 504 um, for these kids. So I guess I, I think um, what I would say to that is there needs to be some kind of liaison between the, the teacher and the parent. And I think in most situations that's going to have to be someone else in the school when there's a language difference, which is oftentimes what we find where the teacher speaks only English and the parents speak only Spanish. And then we um, will identify someone in the school. Um, you know, I, I can't speak for the rest of the country, but I know in, in this part of the country, um, 
when we have schools that um, serve a lot of Latino families, there are always administrative type positions in the school that are held by individuals who are bilingual. And so sometimes it may be bringing in the social worker. Sometimes it could be bringing in the person who answers the phone um, at the school and works at the desk. It could be bringing in um, the Spanish teacher, which we have done before. So I, I think it's really being able to identify someone in the school who can serve as a liaison um, between the parent and the teacher. Okay, thank you. And most school districts will have someone available who is Spanish speaking who can be that liaison and assist uh, families. And many communities, if there isn't someone in the school district, many communities do have resources and the school should know of a resource where a translator can be made available to assist. Also another resource would be the local parent technical assistance center. These are um, centers set up throughout the country. And if anyone has a question on how to find one, we would be happy to assist them in locating the one closest to them in their state. Again, give us a call here at the National Resource Center. Well, our next question is coming from David. And he was wondering if you know of any programs for Spanish-speaking adults that are similar to what uh, you've described. And he's looking, where can he refer the parents of his, his clients, his patients who have ADHD? Are there any such programs for adults that you would know of? Unfortunately, um, I don't know of any, not only in this area, but really anywhere in the country, to be honest. I mean, this um, treatment is, is um, an adapted behavioral treatment, so this isn't a treatment that would um, be applicable to adults. Um, and I don't know of any, anyone out there who's doing um, that kind of research in terms of adapting ADHD treatment for um, Spanish-speaking Latino adults. I'm sorry. All right, well, thank you, and It may be a, an area of study or research that perhaps one of our participants would be like, would like to pursue someday. Well, we have a question now from Alan, and he was wondering if you could provide any information about Marquette University's peer program for teens, for teens with ADHD. Peer or peers? It's peers. Um, it is an intervention that actually was developed initially for teens on um, with autism spectrum disorder, and it's focused on um, uh, friendship building and um, social skills. And so the goal is to um, help these kids develop and maintain um, even one um, reciprocal friendship. Um, so it's, it's something that is available in kind of different spots throughout the country. I'm pretty sure the one we have at Marquette for ADHD is the only one in um, this Midwest area. Um, again, because it's most often um, used with teens with ASD. Um, but it's a 14-week program, and again, the um, it's uh, 11 to 17 is the age range that we see, and um, the teens are in a group, and the parents are in um, a group as well. They meet at the same time but in different rooms, and the entire focus is on helping um, these teens develop and maintain friendships. 
Okay, thank you. That sounds like a, a very helpful and very interesting program. Is there a website that perhaps you could mention uh, in case anyone does have any additional questions on that program? So there is more information about the program on um, the, at, at Marquette University's in the Psychology Department website. You'll see a link for um, the Peers Program for ADHD, and then you also will see a link for the Peers Program um, for teens with ASD, which is um, Dr. Amy Van Hecke. Is, um, that's her line of work. And so both of those can be found on the Psychology Department's webpage at Marquette University. Okay, thank you so much. Well, we are coming towards the end of this uh, broadcast, but we have a question still from Tom. And he was wondering, in your research, have you found that uh, Latino families have a specific interest for various aspects of treatment, such as they would prefer behavioral management over medication management? Or is that really not so much a question? Is there um, a preferred approach to treatment that you have seen? So um, definitely with the Latino families that we work with, and again, we're working with the subgroup of Latino families, um, but most of them, the, the kids do come in unmedicated, so medication is not something that most of them have tried before. I would say in general, um, I don't think resistance is the right word, but general, in general there's um, less enthusiasm for the pharmacological interventions than there is for the behavioral interventions. But when we have had families who have started with the behavioral interventions and we then several weeks into it have recommended, hey, we really think this, you know, your child would benefit from adding some medication to this as well. We have found that um, in almost all cases the, the families are receptive to that. Um, but when families come in at the assessment stage, um, for the most part, these are families who have not pursued pharmacological interventions. Okay, well thank you. I think this has been very helpful for our audience. I think this has been a very important um, webcast and that your research has been very interesting. Do you have any additional information on your research if someone wanted to go back, look this program up? Where could they find additional information? Is there a, a contact perhaps they would be able to be in touch with? So again, on Marquette's webpage, the, in the, they click on the psychology department. Um, there's a description of all of um, the research that we've done. There's a list of publications that they um, should be able to ask, uh, access publicly. And there's also contact information if they had questions or were looking for something that they couldn't find. All right, well, thank you. This has been, as I said, a, a great experience, and I think you've shared a lot of very helpful information. For our audience members, we really hope that you have enjoyed this presentation. Please take a moment to send us your feedback through the survey that will appear on your screen at the end of this webcast. And our survey does help us to select and build webcasts that are of interest to the ADHD community, so your time in those couple minutes is a big help and a big help to the ADHD community. Also, we hope that you would be interested in joining us on Wednesday, June 20th for a webcast with Dr. Abigail Levini, and she's going to be discussing how to incorporate coaching into your ADHD practice. This is at a special time at 6 p.m. on Wednesday, June 20th, 
and we hope that you will be able to join us. You can register now at help4adhd.org or on the CHAD website at chad.org slash asktheexpert. This has been a presentation in the National Resource Center on ADHD. Thank you again for participating with us today, and we hope you enjoy the rest of your day. This does conclude our webcast.